First reading is from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The second reading is taken from John 18, verses 1 to 12. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So I begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak to us, through which you reveal yourself to us. So I pray in light of that truth that I as preacher would just get out of the way. There'd be far, far less of me and far more of you. That your people gathered virtually would be edified and your son Jesus glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. 
One of the central themes of the Gospels is Jesus confronting the powers of darkness. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that theme is expressed in a particular way. Jesus will encounter someone plagued with the demonic. The demons know who he is and are terrified for good reason. He exercises authority, casts them out, giving freedom and new life to those who were held in their grip. But when we come to the Gospel of John, we find no such stories, no exorcisms, no naming of the demonic, which may lead some of us to breathe a sigh of relief. Never knew what to do with those stories anyway. But that doesn't mean that such darkness is foreign to John. He just wants us to see a different face to it. In John chapter 12, as Jesus' death is nearing, he says, Now is the judgment of the world. The ruler of this world, Satan, will be cast out, exercised. At the Last Supper, John narrates that Satan came upon Judas Jesus leans close and whispers in his ear, what you're going to do, do it quickly. At the end of supper, he says to those remaining, I will no longer speak with you. Why? The ruler of this world, Satan, is coming. Now, as we begin chapter 18, which if, if you have your Bible handy, I'll invite you to turn to, he's done talking. So now is the time, as he said, for the Satan to appear, the accuser, the deceiver. Are we ready to behold the face of darkness? Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. I've made part of this walk. It's not far, a mile at most. Out the city gates, down a dusty path, over a dried creek bed, and then up the hill to the Mount of Olives. The wealthy of the city kept gardens there, walled gardens. And Jesus seems to have been given access to one of these gardens, a place to stay the night outside the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem in the midst of Passover. They settle in. It's time for Satan to arrive. A face materializes out of the darkness the full moon revealing a familiar visage. Judas, fellow disciple, now betrayer. But why? Why betrayal? John has already told us that he was a a thief who skimmed off the top of the collected funds as the 30 pieces of silver that weighed heavy at his waist, his only ambition If so, then why, when he hears that Jesus has been condemned, he goes back to the chief priests and he casts the the silver in front of them and in despair goes out and ends his life at the end of a rope? If Jesus' death, if the money is his only ambition, why would he do that? There must have been something else. He was Judas Iscariot. Iscariot identifying him with a group of radical nationalistic zealots known as the Sakari. They were named after the particular dagger that they carried. 
Their MO was to use the cover of crowds to sneak up behind Romans and their sympathizers and thrust their knives deep and then slink back into the crowd. Their ultimate goal to rid Israel of the Romans. Did Judas as a Sakari see in Jesus one who had the power, the authority, the following to make that happen? Was this betrayal a ruse simply to force his hand, to spur him into action? In Judas's ideology, we find a hellish mix of nationalism, murder, terror, betrayal. Satan has arrived. He's not alone. With him, a band of Roman soldiers. A band was a technical word, a spira, a cohort. 600 of the fiercest fighting force the world had ever seen. They conquered the known world, destroyed entire cultures, left a trail of blood across continents, ravaged the provinces of their natural resources, crushed them with severe taxation, all to build the glory of Rome, a culture that so glorified violence that they built cathedrals to it that survive to this day, where murder by way of gladiatorial contest were cheered on by some 50,000 bloodthirsty fans. Why are they there with Judas? Surely their motives would work at cross-purposes. Well, there were always more soldiers in Jerusalem at Passover. The entire nation would descend upon the city as they remembered and celebrated freedom from Egyptian oppression. It often stirred up trouble for the Romans, bubbling over into riots and unrest in the face of this new oppression This Jesus had entered into the city only a few days before. And the people greeted him with a waving of palm branches and shouts of, Hosanna, save us. The Romans would not have missed the significance. 200 years before, the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes had conquered Israel, turned the Jewish temple into a site of worship to Zeus, Sacrificed pigs in the Holy of Holies turned the temple courts into a public brothel. The Jewish hero Judas Maccabees led a successful rebellion, liberated the city, cleansed the temple, and as he rode in victory into the city, the people greeted him with the waving of palm branches and shouts of, Hosanna, save us! The coinage of the free Israel represented with palm branches. The will of the people for Jesus that day was clear. How could Rome, how would Rome respond to such a threat? The way they responded to every threat. Violence. Satan had arrived. Alongside Judas and the Roman cohort are officers of the chief priests whose service to the temple and complicity with Rome had had served them well, lined their pockets, established their homes in the best parts of town, instilled them as the cultural elite. The faith served them, not the other way around. It undergird their power and privilege, and they couldn't allow Jesus to undermine that. Satan had arrived. 
Not to be left out, the Pharisees are in the mix. They, like Jesus, preach the kingdom of God, but their visions of kingdom had notable divergence. Theirs only for the Jews, his for all races, all peoples. Theirs only for the righteous, the clean, the pure, his also for the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. Theirs earned by the good enoughs, his by grace for the not good enoughs. His vision of kingdom they found reprehensible, unbiblical, untenable. He had to be removed. Of them, Jesus had said, you go to the ends of the earth to make a convert and you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. Satan had arrived in ideology, in nation, in religion, in counter-kingdom. I think we know something of this, don't we? We look out on our world, on our history, we turn on the news, and we can point to nations and governments and corporations and systems and structures and ideologies that destroy, consume, ravage, perpetuate injustice, violence, inequality, incredible suffering. We can point to those things. We have names and faces and logos. We see it. We experience it. But if we were to look closer at those nations and and companies and structures and ideologies, at the individuals within them, they are not the monsters that we would take them for. They don't look a whole lot different from ourselves. I think John is trying to tell us that the demonic is not only individual, as we see in the other Gospels. The demonic can also inhabit system, nation, religion, ideology, resulting in an evil that far surpasses the sum of its parts. Satan has appeared. The forces of darkness have banded together, arranged in one place. There's going to be a decisive battle, if you will, The garden was small. We can picture them three or four deep surrounding the walls, torches, lanterns, glistening steel of sharpened sword. It's a terrifying scene. How does Jesus respond? Well, first, he exposes the darkness for what it truly is. Now, we know something of how this is supposed to work. Over the past decade, the world faced the largest refugee crisis we'd ever seen. Civil war in Syria had displaced millions. Countries closed their borders. Migrant vessels floated in the cruel seas with no safe harbor. Oh, yes, the news covered it. Yes, there was outrage. Yes, we took to Twitter with trending hashtags but there was no real mobilized global response until, until the photo, the body of a young toddler washed up on a Turkish beach, Alan Kurdi's limp body being carried by a Turkish official. In the face of an innocent victim, we saw the darkness for what it was and we recoiled in horror. Elections were shaped Borders were opened. 
people and organizations, including our church, were mobilized in response, darkness was exposed. In verse 4, Jesus comes forward. Or more accurately, in the Greek, he comes out of the walled enclosure. And with incredible poise, he asks a very simple question. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth, they respond. I am he, said Jesus. Except that's not what he said. That's just our English translator trying to smooth out the dialogue. Jesus instead said, Ego emi, I am. I am. When God spoke to Moses, commissioning him to face the powers of darkness that bore the face of an Egyptian pharaoh, Moses asks, Whom shall I tell them sent me? God responds, I am. Meaning there is no beginning, no ending in me. I do not depend in my being on anyone or anything. All things, all beings depend solely on me. I am. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And they draw back and fall to the ground. They caught a glimmer of who he was. As Peter had done in Luke chapter 5, when he sees Jesus' control over creation, he falls down. He says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. As Isaiah had seen in the temple when he beheld the train of God's glory, I'm undone, I'm coming apart at the seams. Jesus in verse 7 once more engages in that same interaction. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. But this time, they don't draw back. They press forward. In this moment, darkness is exposed. We see what lies at the heart of our sin, what lies at the heart of every demonic system, ideology, structure the desire to wipe God from existence, to dethrone the I am and enthrone ourselves, to trample upon and reject his love, his life, his way. Darkness is exposed. We're meant to see it for what it is and recoil in horror. For it is God they are arresting. It is the I am they bind with rope. It is God they drag before the high priest. It is the I am against whom they manipulate the truth to condemn. It is God who is made to stand before Rome and Pilate. It is the I am they scourge. It is God they mock. It is the I am they nail to the cross. It is God they seek to shame by displaying him naked. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. Darkness is exposed. But now it must be confronted. And Peter leaps forward, brandishing a sword. Violence will be met with violence. He lops off the high priest's servant's ear. Jesus intervenes. Put your sword away, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? 
This is how Jesus, the I am, will confront the darkness. By drinking the cup that the Father has given him to drink. The cup? What's the cup? In the ancient world, those sentenced to death were given often a cup of poison to drink. The Bible picks up on this imagery that the cup, the cup of wrath, the cup of rod's righteous judgment upon sin, that is the cup he's about to drink. That is the cup that he agonizes over in the garden. And Luke, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. The cup. Drinking the cup is how Jesus will confront the forces of darkness. I've heard this text preached on before. I've preached it myself. Where this line above everything else in this story gets focused on. Where we often say, well, the historical details of what's going on here around Jesus' death, they're interesting. The Romans, the chief priests, yes, those are interesting, but, but they don't really matter. What really matters is the theology. Sure, Jesus may have been killed for these historical reasons, but what is really going on here is that on the cross, Jesus is receiving in himself the wrath of God upon sin so that through faith in him, we won't receive God's wrath and will instead be saved. But John won't let us do that, meaning that John won't let us separate out history from theology. They belong together. He shows us that. As Jesus says in verse 8, Take me, let my followers go. John adds, This was to fulfill the word that he'd spoken. Those whom you gave me, I've not lost one. The salvation that he's just prayed for in John 17 is being fulfilled in the historical detail of the story. Jesus steps out before those gathered forces of darkness and says, take me, not them. I'll go quietly, let them live. He's substituting himself for them, for us. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. The theology and the history belong together. So where do we see in the history of this story the theological truth of him drinking the cup of wrath. Well, the cup of wrath is indeed God's judgment upon sin. However, what is the full, final expression of God's wrath? Romans 1 and Acts tells us, he gives us over to our desires. He gives us exactly what we want which ultimately destroys us. We've already seen what the forces of darkness desire. To wipe the I am from existence. The dethroning of God and the enthroning of self. To trample upon and reject his love, his life, his way. Satan has appeared. The forces of darkness have all banded together, arranged in one place, a decisive battle The forces of darkness pull themselves up to their full stature and unleash the entirety of their fury upon Jesus. And God in wrath gives them over to their desires. And on the cross, Jesus drinks that cup of wrath right down to the dregs. 
Evil has consumed him. Hell has enveloped him. Death has overtaken him. The ruler of the world, the Satan, remains upon the throne. The exposed body of the I am displayed for all to see. But, but, three days later, as the sun pierces through the darkness, he rises. Hell could not hold him. Death could not swallow him. Evil could not overpower him. They did their worst, but they played themselves out. Jesus is the victor. By his resurrection, he proclaims there's a new king, a new ruler over creation. And if there is a new king, then darkness has no future. If there's a new king, there's a new way to confront the darkness. A new way to confront the darkness. Walter Wink, in his book, The Powers That Be, speaks of the forces of darkness, the demonic that inhabit the systems, the structures of injustice and violence in our world. And one of the things he says that these powers have convinced us as humanity of is what he calls the myth of redemptive violence. Enshrining the belief that violence saves, that war brings peace, that might is right, that the only way to push back against the darkness is with violence, might, power. Wink calls this the dominant world religion. We indoctrinate our kids on it, as almost every cartoon, every video game perpetuates this myth. It's found in our popular culture. Just think of the satisfaction we feel when we watch those revenge flicks. The ones where the hero mets out summary justice rather than risking a court system. Once indoctrinated, we never outgrow the need to locate evil outside of ourselves. As adults, we scapegoat others. If we lean right politically, we blame the left. If we lean left politically, we blame the right. If we get into trouble relationally, we blame the other. It's, me, it's not me, it's them. This myth of redemptive violence shapes the foreign policy of many nations, forms our response to problems in relationship. We run them down to others. We tear them down to their face. We do violence with our words, violence with our look. Peter, in this story, represents us in that, doesn't he? As he faces the darkness, he wields a sword, lashing out. He will meet violence with violence. But if we are brandishing the weapons of Satan, whose servant are we? If Jesus is victorious, he reveals a new way to confront the darkness, the way of the cross the way of self-giving love and forgiveness. I think we could all agree that one of the systems of our world that had been inhabited by demonic forces of darkness was South African apartheid. In that country, there was a deliberate effort influenced by church leaders to diffuse and break down the natural pattern of revenge, retaliation, and violence that so often arises when an oppressed people takes control from the oppressor. 
That effort resulted in the formation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mandela gave the charge that any white official who would face their accusers and fully acknowledge their wrong would not face criminal charges. The nation, he said, needs healing, not justice. In his book, Rumors of Another World, Philip Yancey relays the transformative interaction in one of those hearings. A policeman named Vanderbrook was recounting an incident where he and fellow officers shot an 18-year-old boy and burned the body, turning it over the fire like a piece of barbecue meat to destroy the evidence. Eight years later, Vanderbrook returned to that same home and seized the boy's father. His wife was forced to watch as they bound him over a wood pile, poured gasoline over top, and lit him on fire. The courtroom grew hushed as the elderly woman who had lost first a son and then her husband was given the opportunity to respond. What do you want from Mr. Vanderbook? the judge asked. She said she wanted Mr. Vanderbook to go to the place where they'd burned her husband's body and collect up the dust so that he could have a proper burial. His head bowed, Vanderbook nodded in agreement. She then added a further request. Mr. Vanderbook took all my family away from me, me, but I still have a whole lot of love to give. Twice a month, I'd like him to come to my home and spend the day with me so that I can be mother to him. And I'd like Mr. Vanderbrook to know that he's forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. And I'd like, my embra- I'd like to embrace him so that he can know my forgiveness is real. Spontaneously, some in the courtroom began to sing Amazing Grace. But Vanderbuck couldn't hear. He'd fainted, overwhelmed. The forces of darkness arranged themselves against Jesus, gathered themselves together for one decisive battle. They poured out their fury upon him. They did their worst, but they played themselves out. For hell could not hold him. Death could not bind him. Sin could not vanquish him. He rose again, the victor, the king of a new creation, revealing a new way to confront the darkness, the way of the cross, the way of self-giving love and forgiveness. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.